and water and bathe his body in water and will be unclean until evening. See, again, everything is unclean. The water cleanses nothing, even though the body is washed. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your holy word. Your word is good. It's it's water for a panting deer that pants for the water brook. It's truth. It's authentic. It's nothing like we find in the world. A world filled with lies and deception and from everywhere we look, whether it's human or demonic, it's just evil so much of the time. We have moral conscience, Lord. We recognize that our, we are sinful people born into this race of Adam. But then, Lord, there is the truth as we see it in your word, as revealed by God for your glory written by your hand through, to be sure, uh, instruments which are defiled by sin, but made right by the blood of the Lamb. Lord, give us hearts to understand what's written in it, in your word today. I pray that our hearts would be open, our minds would be open to the truth and only the truth. We ask these things for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, lesson for today and for this podcast, is found in Numbers chapter 19. This is episode 69, and it's entitled The Purifying Red Heifer. The Purifying Red Heifer. Beginning in Numbers 19, 1 through 22. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded. That's uh, verses 1 and 2. This is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded. You know, we live in a world where people, you know, we boss each other around. We have bosses. We call them bosses. And we, we do what we have to do to get by, and everybody understands it, and there has to be someone in control. But what we're talking about here you know, in this lesson, isn't about man's control. This is about the Lord speaking to a man, Moses and Aaron, and saying to them, this is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded. That's Jehovah. That is the one who stood before Moses in a, burn, in a bush that burned and wasn't consumed. It was flames, it was fire. It should have just like went up. Like it's a bush, how fast does that go up? But it just burned and burned and burned so long that Moses had to go see what it was all about. This is the I am that I am that we find about in Exodus chapter 3 and 4. The one who's without creation, the one who was never created, the one who always was. 
This is uh, this is the eternal God making this command. Like, and with that, we should like stop. Wait a minute. We have to take special notice of this. This isn't a book written by men. Men don't write books that take twelve hundred years to write. First of all, they don't live that long. We all know that. You know, sixty, seventy, eighty, maybe years. We're done. Twelve hundred years to write over forty different men in three different languages. And it's all one book. I mean, it's unbelievable the way it fits together. Even what we're going to be looking up here is like over 1,200 years in this span of time in which I'm going to be comparing verses. So this isn't just normal, regular book. And he goes on and says, saying, speak to the sons of Israel that they may bring you an unblemished red heifer in which there is no defect, and on which a yoke has never been mounted. The sons of Israel are a special people. And because they are inherently inherently different, not because they are inherently different, but because they were separated from the rest by God's sovereign choice. Let's get that. They're special, not by their own person, any one of them, all of them put together, but by God's sovereign choice. He chose Abraham, he took him from the land of Ur, and he anointed him, he, he blessed him, he promised to him. Why? He came out of a land of idolatry. He separated him out, he made a choice. The remnant of the chosen people Israel were and are eternally separated from the majority. Those separated by birth were still damned by God's sovereign will. The remnant, just the way Abraham is one man, chosen out of a whole land of people and said, I'm going to start something different with you. And then he starts having kids. All of the kids by birth aren't part of the people. That's a misunderstanding. And Paul talks about that in Romans 9, 10, and 11. He goes into great detail. The remnant is the, the chosen of the chosen. The chosen is here's a whole group of people, and out of them, all Jewish people, I am going to use them in my plan to bring about salvation for all people. And so you have the Abrahams and the Moses and the Davids and, and all of those people and all the writers of the, of the, uh, of the Bible, of the scriptures, all Jewish almost all Jewish. The remnant of the chosen people Israel were and are eternally separated from the majority, those separated by birth. They're still damned by God's sovereign will. Today it remains the same in the church. Jesus said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will be, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? It is not those who plead their own cause that are saved, but those who the Lord pleases pleads their case. You get that? So man, on those that final hour before the great white throne of judgment, will say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? But Jesus already told us it's not everyone who says Lord, Lord. It's those whom God says. We are not saved because we say so. 
but because God in Christ says so. Every sacrifice had to be unblemished because the sacrifice or the removal of sins is by another. And that other has to be without sin. Jesus never sinned, Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, just as we are, yet without sin. It's those three key words at the end that we focus on, yet without sin in this context. A yoke is for a beast of burden, and the burden is of sin. Romans 6, 5 through 7 says, For if we have become united with him, that's Jesus, in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. In this case, slavery has to do with each and every man as we're born into this race. We give ourselves to sin in a myriad of ways. We make choices and we choose to sin. From those that can't be seen, they're hidden in our heart, they're spoken through our mind, our mouth doesn't move, our actions aren't made. It's just what we are within. We're not Sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners. For the one who has died is freed from sin. That's why there is a sacrifice, so that men might be set free by the sacrifice. And the ultimate sacrifice, of course, is Christ. In Christ, or by identification in Christ, we are no longer sinners in God's sight. And the process which becomes, makes us sinless has begun. When we're identified in Christ, we're no longer sinners in God's sight. And then there's this process of sanctification that takes place. And that's being set apart for God. So far as the process is of God, it is with power. If the process is not of God, there is no power, nothing really gets done. And so Numbers 19 continues, And you shall give it to Eleazar the priest, that is the sacrifice, and it shall be brought outside the camp and be slaughtered in his presence. We're talking about a red heifer. It's slightly different and very importantly, different from all other sacrifices. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its hide, its flesh, and its blood with its refuse shall be burned. It's totally consumed. Now it's a red heifer, And the blood, obviously, just said, he puts his fingers in and he sprinkles it. The blood is the the means by which there's cleansing that takes place. And the life is in the blood. The sacrifice has to be something living. And we're talking ultimately about Jesus Christ who is life. He is eternal life. He is the source 
of biological and spiritual life in men. And in this way, and, and for this reason, the blood cleanses. And what does the blood, blood cleanse in this setting? What was just said, even the altar itself, the tent of meeting, the, the, it, he's sprinkling everything. Why? Everything should be sprinkled because everything, we're living in a sinful world, a world affected by sin. And the world in the sense of the cosmos the, the philosophy of the world is really what we're talking about. It's not, not really the dirt, but this, word, this world has been cursed. And it, it's dying, and it's going to be put out of its existence at one point in the future, and a new one will come to pass. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. It's all suffered from the fall of men. Men have corrupted themselves, and in so doing, have corrupted even the earth itself. But that which is corrupted, that's really what, is, what we're talking about here, is that everything has been touched. And every man, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So continuing in verse 6, And the priest shall take cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet material, and throw it into the midst of the burning fire. It's a picture. It's a picture of cedar wood, which is a sweet-smelling wood. It's, it's light wood, but it's very strong, and it's a, it's a sweet aroma to God. So is the hyssop, and the scarlet is a color of blood. It's the sacrifice, and only the sacrifice that is holy and good. All the rest, apart from the sacrifice of facing destruction. Verse 7 the priest shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward come into the camp. But the priest will be unclean until evening. The one who burns the heifer shall also wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and will be unclean until evening. See, again, everything is unclean. The water cleanses nothing even though the body is washed. Wash, but you're unclean. Yes, you're unclean. You're unclean only for a time, but you begin. We all begin unclean. Even the people who are partaking in the religious ordinances. Very key thought here. The the people taking part in the religious ordinances by the washing with just water are unclean. Verse 9, now a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and put them outside the camp in a clean place. And the congregation of the sons of Israel shall keep them for water to remove, to remove impurity. Now you said everything was clean, and you just said a clean person. And I'm going to get to that. Continuing in the verse, it is purification from sin. Continuing in 10, and the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and will be unclean even till evening. And it shall be a permanent statute for the sons of Israel and for the stranger who resides among them. So a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes, but he remains unclean until evening. Now, this isn't a joke. This isn't funny. This is a picture of salvation in, um, in a way which, and I, I have to get to it 
towards the end of the message about the difference between clean by justification and unclean, made unclean in the course of life. And that's where we're going to go. But first, there are ashes which represent the offering and sacrifice to purify sins. Notice verse 9, they are to remove impurity. It is purification from sin that's the issue. The one who gathers the ashes is unclean. Second, this is a perpetual and a permanent statute for Israel and strangers that take part. Perpetual, it's ongoing, perpetual, it's, it's permanent. It will, it's in, in the sense that the statue isn't going anywhere, we need it until the new creation, until we go to glory. John 13, and this is where I'm going to clarify this, John 13, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. He takes a towel and begins washing the disciples' feet. Peter looks at Jesus. Now, he's looking at the one who calmed the storm, fed thousands upon thousands of people from nothing. He healed lepers, just shriveled up, ugly skin, nervous system being destroyed. No cure at that time at all. Nothing to prevent it. And he, he healed them. He healed the deaf, the blind, the lame. He cast out demons with a word. They were fearful. They were always running from Jesus. When by Jesus' power, Sa- Simon caught more fish than the boat, boat could hold, when the fish shouldn't even have been, there shouldn't have been any there, Peter throws himself on his face and says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Now he says to Jesus, never shall you wash my feet. I mean, you understand what's going on through his mind and his heart. You're going to wash my feet. You're going to wash my feet. He understood on on numerous occasions he's standing in the presence of God. He even said, thou art the son of the living God. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. God, only God comes from God. The son is eternal with the father. The, the son is God. He, he understood that. He got it to some degree. He got it more after Pentecost, but he, he got it by the father who delivered it to him. It's not flesh and blood that delivered us to you, but my father who is in heaven. So Jesus says to him, in this time, if I wash not your feet, you have no part with me. This is key in what's being said, what's being done, what's what's being revealed through Numbers 19 and the specific offering of this heifer. In verse 11, it goes on, it says, the one who touches the dead body of any person will also be unclean for seven days. Seven days, he's going to be unclean. Why? That one shall purify himself with the water on the third day and the seventh day, and then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and the seventh day, he will not be clean. Anyone who touches a dead body, the body of a person who has died and does not purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel. Since the water for impurity was not sprinkled on him, he will be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. Now you're saying, what in the world is going on here? If you are saying that, Listen up. The people were warned that they would be defiled by the dead. 
right? Our world is filled with only the dead. You realize that? I mean, while you were dead in your sins and trespasses, Christ, God, made you alive. Colossians chapter 1. While we were dead in sins and trespasses, spiritually dead, all people, we all born into this race of Adam, dead spiritually. Oh, the biology is working. The brain is functioning. But there's a dead there. There's a deadness to God. Can't talk with God. Can't relate to God. Haters of God. Can't love God. Not in the way that God demands. We make false idols. We cut down trees. We form them. We come up with vast philosophies of where everything came from. We call ourselves godly, religious. Just put a name to it. Spiritual. In all these ways, we're dead men. And those who are given new life are fellowshipping, if you will, going shoulder to shoulder with the dead. The people were warned they would be defiled by the dead. Our world is filled with only the dead. Only in Christ is a person made alive. There are sacrifices to remove the sins of the people, but those sacrifices did not purify the people's consciences. They revealed the people's need for a sacrifice. They pointed to the, the way to Christ and not the law that only indicted and made the people guilty and irresist, irreversibly lost before the condemnation of the law. That's all the law does. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creature. For the old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Again, in Galatians 6.15, it says, For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, looking about ordinances, looking about decrees, but a new creation. What matters is a new creation. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. For if the blood, and before we even say this, I want to clarify. The law was given to condemn. It wasn't given to save. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, how we should relate to one another and to God Almighty, never is done away with. It's not it condemns us, but it, it, it's, it's in effect even now. Ordinances have passed, which were meant to further show condemnation of Israel and to separate them from the world around them. We are talking about separation in this chapter. But Hebrews 9, 13 and 14 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who had been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, for the cleansing of the flesh. It's, it wasn't something that really did what we understand the blood of Christ to do. It was a picture. It, it was meant to cause people to look to a sacrifice beyond themselves. That they couldn't earn their way to heaven. That they needed an offering. Verse 14, a beautiful verse in the Bible. It says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, without sin, without any defilement of any kind, 
talking about Christ now. He offered himself. And so how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, not priests who passed away, offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What sets this offering in Numbers chapter 19 of the red heifer apart from the others is it's dealing, meant to deal with the conscience. And it's a perpetual statute, meaning it's, it's always there. Every day, every minute of every day, it's there. And it's there to cleanse away the conscience so those who have been created anew can walk in nearness to God. Peter would have no part with Christ if Jesus did not wash his feet. In 14 of Numbers 19, it says, For this is the law, this is the law when a person dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent will be unclean for seven days. And every open container which has no cover tied down on it will be unclean. Everything's being defiled. Being defiled by the dead. The dead of the spiritually dead. The death of the spiritually dead. Also, anyone who is in the open field touches one who has been killed with a sword or one who has died naturally or touches a human bone or a grave will be unclean for seven days. It's a picture of the grave. It's a picture of death. When men don't get it, they don't understand. They, they're religious from the get-go. They, they just make for themselves gods in their own image when the Bible teaches us that we were made and meant to be understood as made in his image. Then for the unclean person, they shall take the ashes of the burnt purification from sin and running water shall be added to them in a container. And a clean person shall take hyssop. So it's the same pattern here. Only see the ashes that are burned, multitude of ashes, put in a safe place, contained, where they can't blow away, where they can't be um, taken away. And so therefore the water, a few ashes put in, could, could, you, you could use gallons and gallons and gallons and containers of water for the purification of people. And there's what there's this extent by which the blood of Christ is kind of you're looking in that way in a very limited fashion, but the blood of Christ is an eternal spirit and it goes on forever. You know, he, he cleansed us for eternity. And so a clean person shall take hyssop and, and dip it in the water and sprinkle it in the tent. It's like kind of a you know, a branch in which the water you're doing, you're dipping it in the water and then you you swat the the branch and it just flies over everything and it's cleansing what it touches on all the furnishings on the persons who are there and on the one who touched the bone or the one who was killed or the one who died naturally or the grave then the clean person shall sprinkle on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day and on the seventh day he shall purify him and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in the water and will be clean by evening. The law condemns, and only the sacrifice of Christ pardons. Then there is the foot washing 
intended for the conscience only for those who take place in the first sacrifice for sins. The community of the saints is one of sanctifying purity that can only take place among people who allow themselves to be held accountable, who confess their sins to themselves on a daily basis, if not hourly. Remembering that many sins are more temptations and not sins unless the person continues headlong into the sin. So why am I saying that? Because a person's conscience can be defiled because he believes himself to have sinned. You know, in the eyes of God, God is the one who really understands the difference between sin and temptation. He understands when we cross the line. He understands these things. We, you know, in prayer, in seeking God in the Word, in humility, in humbling ourselves before God, we can be granted through the Holy Spirit, those of us who are a new creation, to understand more of what what is what. But it is always best for the sin, the saint, to seek the cleansing water of the blood of Christ for a clear conscience, to know that he can return again to the presence of God, and he can go on in the Spirit, in the power of being filled again anew by the Holy Spirit, having his sins and his, most importantly, the guilt of his conscience cleansed away. For this reason, John writes the first chapter of his letter. And he begins by a view of Jesus, of course. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. You know, he's talking words. He's using words, right? And he's, he's painting a picture. And in the Gospels, of course, in the Gospel of John, he wrote the details of the history of the Christ when he was on earth and he was dealing with men and he was, he was preaching to men and he was healing men and he was revealing himself to men. And in those words, when we place our faith in those words, that faith is made real. It's made authentic. And it's made that way by God. It's not something we do. It's not something we accomplish. We can't create faith any more than we can create life or bread, or anything from nothing. It's something given by God. And so he he shows us Jesus, and then he says, the joy of which John writes is the joy of knowing Jesus. Knowing is not the knowing about Jesus only, but of coming to know him intimately, personally, as closest friends. I know about George Washington. I don't know George, never saw him, Never heard him speak. But Jesus becomes alive in the hearts of people who come to know him personally. We come to know Jesus as coming to know a person who first saved us. Saved our lives. First saved us. The lives of an enemy, which we all were. 
Romans 8, 5, 6, Romans 5, I'm sorry, 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were haters of God, while we were removed from him in our minds and our hearts, dead in our souls, Christ died for us. 2,000 years now before any of us could receive Jesus personally. John goes from writing about the Savior or mess Messiah to writing about the message. Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, get this, goes on cleansing us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. You see the cleansing that's taking place? The forgiveness really is the forgiveness in our own hearts and minds that we are forgiven again. Not that we were not ever not forgiven. When all those sins were placed on the cross, on Jesus, on the cross, they were all forgiven in Christ. Make no mistake about that. But we can lose that in our hearts. We definitely can lose it in our conscience. And so there's this need for this ongoing confessing of sin, confession of sin to to God through Christ. And so we, we need to walk in the light. And the light is that which reveals, and it reveals sin. And we need to continue to see sin for what it is. The hardening of the church, the hardening of men's hearts, which we are warned against so harshly, in Hebrews chapters 3, where we are told, you know, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as they did when they provoked me in the wilderness, Israel. That, uh, that people, that not the, the remnant, you know, the, the majority of the people provoking God and becoming harder and harder and harder, and they never entered the promised land. How many people sit in the pews week after week and they just under the teaching of the gospel, their hearts just get harder and harder and harder until they'll never be changed. Such warnings in the book of Hebrews that set that aside, that tell us and warn us about that. Do not harden your heart. And then the promises. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He speaks not about the removal of sin here, which was done on the cross of Christ and realized by us when we placed our faith in Christ alone for our salvation. But rather, in his first chapter, is speaking about the purification of our guilty conscience. As the Christian brushes up against the dead without judgment, 
he becomes defiled by the love of this world that is passing away without any regard for the sacrifice of God's Son. And so it is with the world. We congratulate ourselves every time we turn around. What a great job you did, you know, in, in, in that movie. Your acting was great. We build monuments to soldiers. And, and God bless people who stand up for what's right and die for what's right. But when you die for what's right and you do not live it for God, it's like a clinging symbol. You know, it's, it profits nothing, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1, 2, and 3. If I have not Christ, if I have not love, I've accomplished nothing. No, the message is that God is the only one who can cleanse our consciences from dead works. And believe me, works, there are three types of works. There's evil works, which is anything against God and his law. There are good works, which are done by the redeemed, by the blood, by those who are a new creation in Christ, those who repent of sin, turn away from sin through the blood of the eternal sacrifice that Christ made on the cross and are raised from the dead in newness of life. Those are good. And then there's dead. And they, they can be religious. They can be helping people across the street. They can be anything and everything that's good without God. John concludes his thoughts about purification by leaving no room for misunderstanding. John gives no Christian permission to sin. We use the water of purification which makes us clean by reason of the ashes that follow the destruction of the offering. Christ having risen from the dead, we are to sin no more. Hear that? We are to sin no more. We need a, a clear conscience as we read about in Hebrews 9, 13, and 14. How much more will the blood of God, Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Without this cleansing work, we become separated from God by our own guilt. We feel defiled and as if we, as if we betrayed the one who died for us. We feel guilty as if we had betrayed the one who died for us. But as the ashes of the blood heifer uh, symbolized, even so, the blood of Christ is the authentic sacrifice, and it washes our, our conscience clean. You're cleansed beneath the blood. And without this blood... <clears throat> cleansing work, we become separated from God by our own guilt, but with it, with the blood, we are continually, permanently cleansed, being cleansed, so that we will not sin. So he goes on in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, my little children, I'm writing these things, here's the reason, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous, cleanse it again, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. You know, there is enough 
serious spiritual content in Romans, the book of Romans, 1 through <clears throat> one through 8, predominantly, well, all of it, taken as a whole, <clears throat> if rightly understood, <clears throat> excuse me, and it's not often rightly understood, but when rightly understood, particularly 5 through 8, when it's rightly understood, there is so much power when combined with the Holy Spirit of God that is released in our humility when we confess our sin to actually enable us to live a holy life. I think most people today in the church don't believe that for a minute. I think what they believe is we're just sinners saved and we just go on sinning and we just sin. And uh, we do. And you certainly will unless that faith that's placed in the forgiveness of Christ for justification. Oh, now we're good. We can go. If it's placed in Christ in the right way, with the right weapons of our warfare, then it can also be true for our sanctification. And believe me, it is meant to be that way. If we do not live this kind of a life within a fellowship of believers who are committed and who covenant together then there is no place for authentic and sincere fellowship in Jesus Christ. But the person, and this is how we conclude uh, uh, Numbers 19, with these two verses, three verses, 20 through 22, but the person who is unclean and does not purify himself, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord the water for impurity has not been sprinkled on him, so he is unclean. So it shall be a permanent statute for them. And the one who sprinkles the water for impurity shall wash him, shall wash his clothes, and the one who touches the water for impurity will be unclean until evening. Furthermore, anything that the unclean person touches will be unclean and the person who touches it will be unclean until evening. The picture here is like leaven. People in a church body bouncing off of each other and making each other unclean. The whole body becomes unclean. It's an infection that spreads. And so it seems harsh. Well, wait a minute. But the person who is unclean and does not purify himself, that person will be cut off from the midst of the assembly. Why? You want to make everybody unclean? You want to defile everybody's conscience? You want to separate everybody from God so that no one is able to live a godly life because they're being defiled and they're defiling the sanctuary of the Lord and they're defiling one another. You want to know why the church is in the state it is today? Because people do not heed the word of God. They just make it say what they believe it to say, what they want it to say, or maybe even what they don't want it to say, under the guiles of the devil. But it doesn't matter in the end, because in the end, if we're defiling the sanctuary of the Lord, and that's what matters, it's the sanctuary of the Lord. It's not our sanctuary. We don't have the right to live however we decide. We are brought into a covenant relationship with the living God, and we are responsible to live in under that It remains the same today, whether it's Numbers 19, or it's 1 John, or it's John 13, 
or it's Hebrews 9, wherever the passage is, and they're all over the New Testament. It remains the same from the old to the new. We cannot cleanse away the guilt of sin. Compromise with the world and sins of the mind and the heart that we may even hide from ourselves. The ashes are there for our cleansing. If you are in a Christian, are you let me ask you this. Look, if you're a Christian, are you taking advantage uh, of the picture of the ashes of a heifer? Are you taking advantage of them? Are you taking advantage of them so that you don't defile the whole assembly of God? Are you walking in the blood? You know, it's one thing to be discerning, and we, we need to desperately need today to be discerning about these things and, and, and who we are in the church. And, but it's, it's, there is a line to cross between discernment and a critical spirit. And the critical spirit can be seen very clearly in the divisions that there are in the church and the permission that we give each other to be separate. Not only are we meant to be one in the essentials, we are meant to be one in the secondary issues. Now that might seem hard, and I talk about this in my last podcast. But look, with, with this possibility of cleansing over and over, being cleansed, being cleansed, being cleansed, and thereby walking in the Spirit, and walking obediently to Christ so that the cleansing is more of temptation than it is of sin. When we, we get there and we do not defile one another, then we're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We don't hear, well done, good and faithful servant at the judgment automatically. I hope, I hope you realize that. I hope you're very familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that makes it very clear that there will be a, a judgment, a bema seat of Christ, the handing out of rewards, but it's also gold, silver, precious stone that go through the fire and the wood, the hay, and the stubble that don't go through the fire. And we will suffer loss. We'll be saved. We will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, or else you don't get in. If you don't hear some, well done, good and faithful servant. But we may not hear as much as we think we will. And that's what this message is about. It's about the method laid out by God of an ongoing cleansing of sin by saying, Lord, I have sinned. And then going on to sin not. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray Lord, for the church in general, the universal church around the world, wherever the person might be, in, uh, in the North Pole, in Antarctica, in the, in the East, in the Middle East, in Europe, in Africa, in Australia, South America, North America, all around the globe, every part. I pray, dear Heavenly Father, from north to south to east to west, the islands, wherever people might be. I ask, Lord, as they sit under the gospel, if they sit under the gospel, I pray that it would bring 
a renewed spirit, a new creation, and that all of those people who are a new creation in Christ would walk in, in the cleansing of the blood of Christ, that they would not defile the church, that we would become one, and that we would be the witness that we're meant to be, that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God, and that he came to die to save men from their sins. I know, Lord, that many, many churches, and I hear it almost daily now from the people to whom I minister, of the hypocrisy in the church and how many are offended by it and how many won't look at a church for that reason. Lord, save us. Save us, the church, from this ghastly, ugly, sinful separation that invades us and, and prevails. Lord, put it to an end. Bring revival. Send your Holy Spirit. And allow us, Lord, to die to self and to live faithfully to God, to you. I ask these things in your holy and precious name, in the precious and holy name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray all these things. Amen. Amen.